Welcome to Crypto Nights, where we help you finally make sense of the trending world of cryptocurrencies. So gather your virtual piggy bank and let's get started. Welcome to the next episode of Crypto Nights, where the best minds bridge the crypto divide. I'm your host, Kant Miriala. Here is a disclaimer. These are for educational purposes only and not a solicitation nor an endorsement for investment. You do so at your sole discretion, my friend. We suggest you do your due diligence. We are not financial advisors. Tokens are highly risky and you could lose all of your invested money. With that, let's come on to the introduction of our guest speaker for today. We are super excited to bring to you a co-founder of a company called Stay A While. Stay A While is the first company to combine blockchain-based technologies and furnished apartment rentals to create a global real estate ecosystem for an international clientele. If you listen to that a couple of times, you'll realize that there are very carefully thought out differentiators right there. The team is led by CEO Janine Yorio, who built a career in private equity focused on real estate and hospitality. Talk about domain expertise, that is there. The CTO, Brett Woodward, a software engineer, blockchain geek, and Wharton grad out of AppNexus. So we have a very strong founding team that's leading this company. That's something that we are excited about. And they are building a branded network of furnished apartments with the ultimate goal of creating a new category, medium-term housing not short-term like you would do for an Airbnb, nor leasing a house, which is a long-term. This is medium terms. That's, you know, by the, by the wording, lies in between the two. They have a proven concept in New York and Boston. And that's another thing that we liked. We always like companies that are pre-existing, they have a proven idea, and they have also raised money the traditional way through VCs. Okay, now that doesn't have to be, but in this case, that's definitely a plus. And they're beginning to scale through a franchise-like model into new markets, including Philadelphia. So without further ado, help me welcome Janine Yorio. Hi, Janine. Good morning. Hi. Good morning, Kant. How are you? Great, great. We both are going to be hosting you together. And we're very, very excited. Uh, we've been looking at this space of yours and we do the usual going to your website, trying to think up nice questions and all of that. And uh, uh, Bohit has been super excited about this as well. So uh, let's let's start at the very beginning, as I say. How did you and uh, Bohit connect? So I have been reading everything that I could find about blockchain, uh, internet coin offerings, and I happened upon an article that Mohit had written in Hacker Noon, and I thought it was particular. It just stood out. There's obviously a lot of writing on the topic and I thought his article was really insightful and I reached out to him and we just started emailing back and forth. Wow. Glad, glad you did and glad Mohit yeah. wrote the article. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think most of, most of my connection that I've made is because of the articles and I'm so glad that that article happened. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. So I want to jump right into it. I know that uh, we wanted to talk a lot about stay a while, but I love my origin stories. <laughs> we all have that, right? For all the superheroes, we want to know the origin story. And you're certainly all founders of uh, ICOs are superheroes one way or the other. So what is your backstory? How did uh, yeah, the idea originate? So how far back do you want to go? Do you want to start with my childhood or should we start more recently in the past year? You were telling How me much some, time do you have this morning, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? We might do a series on you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We'll do a biopic. <laughs> so why don't we do this way? You did mention that there was a significant amount of relevance of your family and the background and the influence yeah. of this idea. So, uh, uh, and I'm sure our audience will enjoy if we started the childhood. So uh, sure. how long you want to go is up to you, but let's go. I'll give you the short version, but it gives you a lot of insight into who I am today. So I grew up in a family of architects. Uh, my mother's an architect, my aunt, my grandfather, and my mother actually designs hotels. So I grew up with her going around the world um, while she was designing hotels. I literally spent my childhood in hotels, living sort of a semi-nomadic lifestyle at the time. My father worked for Intel. And so I grew up in this family of people who were builders and creators, and that was a primary formative influence on me in my life. 
when I went to college, I graduated and I immediately gravitated toward working in the hotel industry. So I, I started working for a private equity firm that was a real estate focused private equity firm that had done a lot of very, um, at the time, they were really widely regarded hotel deals. It was the beginning of the boutique hotel era. And they had backed Ian Schrager, who was the first boutique hotel guy. He started Studio 54 and evolved into opening these super cool, very chic hotels. And that was the PE firm that I worked for. And I started when I was very young and I was there for almost eight years. Um, I started as an analyst. And by the time I, I left there, I was a portfolio manager and I had worked on thousands of real estate deals and lots and lots of hotel deals specifically for Schrager's portfolio, which we eventually um, and it's called Morgan's Hotel Group was the IPO. And so after that, I went to work for a hotel company where I was head of acquisitions and development. And that was Standard Hotels, which is another super cool boutique hotel company. So my career has been spent, even my, my earliest days have been spent thinking about design and how real estate can fundamentally change how we feel about ourselves. And most recently, I've worked for a few startups that were trying to build a different kind of housing, um, housing designed for people that were either looking to share their living spaces in the form of co-living or people that were looking to live nomadically. And I saw that there was a really interesting white space opportunity that wasn't being filled, which was a new, a new asset class, a new category designed specifically for people that don't want to live the same way that our parents always have. And... I wanted to build something, especially for these people. And they're not just young people. They're people in all different phases of life who want to live an asset light lifestyle. They want to be able to move around. They want a lot less friction in their life. They don't necessarily want to carry with them all of the family antiques and tons of furniture and china and, and things that really weighed us down. Rather, they want to be able to live like freely. And so I started Stay A While. And the whole point behind Stay A While is to create a new category, a new category of housing that's designed for people that need a place to live for a few months at a time. And I wanted to make something that was solid and interesting and that had good design so that we could eliminate any stigma around temporary housing and living this lifestyle and make it something that's cool and aspirational and comfortable and that has good design. And that was why I started Stay A While. It was, it was kind of the culmination of everything I'd experienced in my life from my early childhood to my professional career to being inside all of these new housing trends. Oh my God. That's, the reason that's very exciting is that's truly a, something that we are noticing. The world is traveling like there is no tomorrow. And I totally agree with the nomadic lifestyle. And to some extent, the reason for the rise of things like Airbnb is because people are traveling and staying at alternative type of housing. They're not necessarily the professionals, business people staying in the hotels. Uh, that's, a, that's one category. But then this Airbnb type travelers, I used to think in the beginning that, oh, these people just want a cheaper place maybe some of them, but that is not really largely they want to experience. I had this, uh, I have this friend in Austin and he lives in Austin, but for a long weekend, he was staying in a Airbnb place in Austin and I'm scratching my head. He's a, he's a young guy in his twenties. I said, why would you spend more money in Austin? And he says, oh, it's the experience. <laughs> and he went on to describe where it was in the woods and the water and all of that. And it's and he gave me reasons why it makes sense to have a vacation in Austin, which is only half an hour or 15 minutes away from his home. He says, I just want to get away. And, and I'm thinking, whoa, here is a generation that thinks completely differently and they want a different type of housing. So I think what you're saying is exciting. And the funny thing he asked me was, uh, or he mentioned just in the passing was, you know, I wish that I could just stay for a few months and then go to another place and stay for a few months. And all these leases are one year and all these Airbnbs are one week. So, <laughs> so yeah. I yeah. think you found a white space. I totally agree with that. 
And then, so there are a lot of different things happening. First of all, we see people that want to combine work and travel in a seamless way. We actually don't even think about our product necessarily as a travel-related product. We're really focused on, I, I believe there's an entire housing spectrum. So if you want to stay somewhere for a night or two or even a week, you stay in a hotel. If you want to stay for a week or maybe two, maybe you book an Airbnb. If you want to stay for a year, you know, you go out, you rent an apartment, maybe you even buy a home. But what happens if you want to stay for somewhere for a month or two or three? That's where there's really this missing product in the market. Um, and that's where I think StayOL can come to play. I think Airbnb has done the, the heavy lift of helping, to cons- helping consumers to rethink how they house themselves. And they've opened up this world of possibilities so that it's not just hotel or long-term arrangement. And now we're coming in as a second wave and a refinement on that original new consumer behavior with a product that is branded and consistent and takes that whole behavior that Airbnb has cultivated and takes it one step further and makes it even more mainstream. Yeah. And we are also seeing a demographic shift it took, it took 20 years. You know, some of these impacts, we saw internet and said the world is flat. That's a true statement, but it was made 20 years prematurely. And 20 years later, we are finding that there's movement in two directions. One is high cost to low cost movement is happening and cold to warmer climates is happening. Uh, Texas, where I'm now, I, I moved from Chicago last year to Texas. Both my kids work in Austin. I live in Dallas with my wife. And this shift is not particular to me. It's it's a it's a trend. Uh, the highest amount of incoming people is in Texas, and the highest amount of outgoing people is out of Illinois, uh, as we speak. Mm-hmm. So that means I can if I can work from anywhere, I would rather work in a place that is cheaper and and better climate. And that yeah. shift is clearly happening. And then there is a third thing. Uh, I'm now giving away my age. People that are younger than me have a third requirement, which is Hey, I don't want to be bound to one location for a long time. For me, it's yeah. like a few months here, a few months there. A Florida would be great for a few months, and then a Texas would be great for a few months, and maybe then I'll go to North Carolina for a few months. Yep. Uh, why not? Yep, exactly. So when I first started Stay A While, I wanted to build a marketplace. The thought was to try to find um, really good temporary housing and aggregate it all so that people who want to live this lifestyle could just come to Stay A While and book it. But what I realized in digging deeper into the space is there just wasn't a lot of good inventory out there. And so our business model actually shifted away from just being a straight marketplace into one where we actually create the supply ourselves. So we have apartments that we manage, we furnish them. They're all furnished in a, in a design aesthetic that's connected. So if you're staying in a stay a while in New York or Boston or eventually Mexico City or Los Angeles, they all feel related the way a hotel company does when they have brands and they extend them across different geographies. And we actually manage the properties so that we can ensure that they're consistent because that's another thing that we kept hearing from our customers who do try to live around Airbnbs is there, there's a lot of legwork entailed in trying to find the right Airbnb. And oftentimes you move in and then you have to move out because something about the situation isn't quite right. We bring consistency and professionalism to truly eliminate the friction around around this lifestyle. Wonderful. Can you give us a user-centric story? If you take a Bob uh, you know, and a Mary and you say, okay. Before that, can I ask one question? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about the pricing of stay a while. Will, uh, is, is the pricing very similar to booking an Airbnb for four weeks or uh, eight weeks? Or does it overall come out to be a way, 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 uh, lot cheaper than, than an Airbnb or a hotel room? It's just, it's just like Airbnb in that it depends it depends entirely upon the location. So, okay. for example, we're based in New York City and we have several uh, locations in New York City and they cost dramatically different amounts of money because different parts of town are more expensive than others. So if you're very price sensitive, the lowest cost uh, apartment we have now in New York City rents for $3,300 per month. 
um, fully furnished. That includes taxes, utility, Wi-Fi, and monthly housekeeping. The most expensive one we have, I think, is $5,200 a month. So there's a wide range. Um, New York City is one of the most expensive cities in the world. So I know those prices probably sound shockingly high. In uh, a city like Philadelphia, where we operate, it's it's a cost about half as much because real estate in Philadelphia, it just costs half as much. And when we eventually expand to cities that have significantly lower costs of doing business, we'll be able to offer significantly lower cost offerings. Got it. But, 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 but uh, one second, this 3,350, 200 per month. What is a, is it one bedroom, two bedroom and approximate square footage just so that we get an idea and a feel? Uh, and, and for those of you not from New York City, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and London, all of these numbers are going to sound like eye-popping. But they are, that's for either a studio or a one-bedroom apartment. They're generally about 400 square feet on average, which is, I think, 37 square meters. So they're not big, um, and they are expensive, but that's, that's what it is to live in New York City. Yeah, as a person who's familiar with New York City pricing, I totally agree with you. These are not, when you threw in uh, a lot of other things, like it's furnished and it has Wi-Fi, it's heat, it's tax, everything is included. It's priced significantly lower than a hotel. If you were to book a hotel in New York City, at a minimum, you'd be paying $7,000 a month. And that's not even for a particularly nice hotel. And the hotel wouldn't have a kitchen. Um, And so, so we're aiming to be considerably less expensive than a hotel and about on par with a nice Airbnb. Okay. Okay. Without the guesswork. Yeah. So, so if 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 you if if in future you move out move to various cities which are not as expensive to New York City, so maybe so your prices would be comparable to other Airbnbs over there. Exactly. We we're not trying to make we're trying to make a mainstream product. We mm-hmm. we came in a bit. We opened. So what we did was we thought about how Uber started. Uber started with Uber Black Car, and they came out with a higher price point offering first. And then as they got deeper into the market and had more penetration than UberX and UberPool, and they were able to offer lower cost offerings. And we're, we're taking the same approach. We're starting um, kind of toward the mid to high end in Italy. And over time, we'd like to offer different price points. So we talk about having a select, stay a while simple. Um, but again, all similar design aesthetic and a consistency and a professionalism. So you don't have to worry. And an all-inclusive pricing. That is a big deal yes. as well. Okay. Mohit, sorry. Uh, you were saying something. No, no, I said already. <laughs> okay. So uh, I think I think we are understanding the value proposition, uh, who your target customer is to some extent, and what is the offering, and where you're starting, and what your vision is, and also why you started, and why you started, and why you started this. Uh, so can we can we fast forward and talk about stay a while? When did it start, and uh, how did you put the team together, mm-hmm. and why did blockchain become the obvious technology of choice? Yep. So I started the company. I had the idea about a year ago. Um, it was I think approximately October of 2016. I started putting the team together in January of 2017. And I closed my first investment round in the spring of 2017. So the team right now is comprised of seven people. We're all based in New York City. Uh, My head real estate guy is uh, TJ Kawamura, and I had worked previously together at a startup. Um, My head of technology, Brett Woodward, I was actually working in the same office space that he was. And I I had a a different programmer at the time and it wasn't working out particularly well. And I met Brett and we really hit it off. And so he is our lead software engineer. He came out of uh, BlackRock and then he worked at AppNexus and he has a ton of programming experience. He's also just so happens to be a blockchain enthusiast and he has been mining uh, mining coins since 2009 and just before we even started talking about how it might relate to stay a while it was something that he was very passionate about personally um, he has another software engineer Jared Jujarowin who works for him um, we have a an an on-team uh, interior designer Gita Gandhi and she actually spent 
most of her career as a real estate attorney um, at one of the biggest law firms in New York City and later in life decided to become an interior designer. So she works with us um, on designing the spaces, but she also helps us put together the real estate transactions that we're working on. And then I have Najla Austin, who is our head of sales and operations. And so we have an eclectic team. We all all work together. We're all from New York City. Um, We all have different connections to the hospitality and startup space. Um, And then what was the second part of the question? I guess you wanted to find out about blockchain and how we eventually came to this idea of working with blockchain. Right. So in other words, we tend to ask this of people, did you start with blockchain and then add stay a while or did you start with stay a while and then add blockchain? So we definitely started with stay a while first. I didn't know much at all about blockchain as of spring 2017. Um, When we started this company and and we eventually evolved the business model to one where we were managing the apartments, we realized we were going to have to make something that not just is loved by consumers, but that landlords also love too. And in order to make landlords love us, we had to do things a little bit differently than Airbnb has been doing because a lot of landlords... They know Airbnb is happening in their buildings, but they don't necessarily love it because they often get fined by the city. So we do a few things to differentiate ourselves. First of all, we always do credit check and background check on the the stay-a-well customers who move into the units. And what we found was that a lot of our potential customers were foreign and they, they came to us because it's very, very difficult to rent an apartment, especially in the U.S., if you're not a, a permanent resident of the United States. Um, you don't often have a credit score. You generally can't verify your income here. You uh, usually have bank assets that are held in overseas bank accounts. If you don't have enough income, you usually don't have a local guarantor. So there are all these obstacles that stand in the way of regular people who who might not be citizens or permanent residents of the U.S., but who still want to live here. And we saw this as a really big opportunity. And and just to give you some real life stories, like there are people who are here, they might be international graduate students. They might be, you know, for example, we have a student from Singapore who is in New York City uh, doing one year in his graduate program. Um, And it's very difficult for that person to rent an apartment, even if that person might be reasonably well off in their home country. Even Canadians have a really hard time renting real estate in the U.S. And so we kept hearing these stories over and over again. And on top of that, we we take payment by credit card, which means we pay credit card commissions. And we were also having trouble because oftentimes when people tried to run their credit card, if they were a foreign person, our uh, processor was telling us that it appeared to be a fraudulent payment. So we were having friction just even, we were, we were trying to eliminate friction. And as the intermediary trying to eliminate it, we were having friction of our own. And we kept saying there has to be a better way. There, there, so I started doing research. Was there anything like an international credit score? Is there anything that you can do to assess the credit worthiness of people who are not, who don't have a U.S. FICO score? And it turns out the answer to that question is no. And so we started thinking about how we could really differentiate ourselves and really break down the barriers that stand between this ultimate vision of mobility I have. And at the same time, blockchain was blowing up. You know, anybody who was in the startup space um, would have had to be asleep for the last six months not to have read about crypto and the the rise in Bitcoin prices and Ethereum and and just all the different applications that were starting to become more and more mainstream. And I I kept reading about it and Brett and I started talking. And initially we thought, well, you know, it's a good idea, but it kind of seems like it's in fantasy land. It's probably not something we can do. And then we just kept talking and we're like, wait a second, I think this is something we could actually do. And and by by creating a blockchain-based system, we can eliminate over time a lot of the major obstacles that international people find when they're trying to move overseas. And we just started putting together, it wasn't, we didn't call it a white paper. At the time, we were just writing down what the problems are and trying to think through solutions. And that's really how this evolved. I mean, it was, it was um, an organic process that started with a pie in the sky idea that we thought, well, because we, we have a Monday morning team meetings and we always end the meeting by everybody has to go around the table and, and say one crazy idea you know, one crazy thing that we could do to really make the company interesting or different or better. And a lot of times the ideas are stupid, 
But every once in a while, one of them has legs. And I think this idea started as one of our, you know, what if we had our own our own uh, currency, I think was the, the conversation. And, and, you know, we just started thinking about it. And as we got deeper and deeper into it, it became more formed. And at the same time, the token sale and ICO market, you know, blew up. And it just seemed like a really interesting opportunity for a company like ours that has a global expansion plan, that has a product that's already well-formed, that has a team that's already equipped that already understands blockchain to try to figure out some of these issues using a new technology. And that's how we, that's how we landed in this, in this interesting position that we're in now. And it solved a problem for your initial target segment of foreign nationals trying to live in us easily. Constituency that we're marketing to. I mean, the people who, okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Can you repeat what you said again? Yeah, I said the, the whole idea of stay a while and blockchain really resonates with our constituency that we were already marketing to even before we announced the connection of blockchain, because the people that love stay a while are early adopters. There are people who don't want to do things the same way that have always been done. And there are people whose life has things available on demand in every other aspect. So there are people who are heavy users of Uber and who, um, you know, never go out to buy food. They have it delivered to them and they're just accustomed to an on-demand lifestyle and they want to see the same thing in their living and housing situation. So when we start talking about further integrating something that's new and on the cutting edge, they're like, right on, that's absolute, that's who we are and that's what we want to see. And so it's not just a way to create a new utility, but it's really a way to build a community around people that want to do things in new ways and people that want to live in a different way. Wonderful. So now let us move into, so would you say that uh, you started thinking about blockchain early this year, February, March types? Yeah, I started reading about it. We started talking about it, honestly, probably, in April, May, uh, around that time. Yeah. And then we started working on, you know, just how we might do it if we were going to do it this summer. Okay. And that's the part we are interested in is we are interested in the token design because it it tells a lot about how this whole thing integrates into the business side. And Mm -hmm. Mohit has a simple way of deconstructing uh, the token design. Mm -hmm. Although he's here, I'm going to break it down. So. So we have this token that has stakeholders. You have the developers, namely you and your team. Uh And then you have the users, namely uh, Joe and Mary, who want to live every three, four months at a different place. Uh And then you have investors or speculators, you know, or traders who all fall under another bucket. So we found it instructive and easy to deconstruct it as this way. So if you can kind of, approach the token design from each of these three different angles and say, hey, for the users, these this is how they use it. This is the value. This is a function of value for investors and traders and this and that. The supply is limited. The demand is growing or something like that. And you give the reasons. And as developers, you talk about the vesting period. So, so if you can kind of... Well, let's start about it first from the consumer side. So consumers, they have they can use stay well today using fiat currency. So what, what will make a token more useful to them than fiat currency? The first one we talked about, we touched on loosely, which is this idea of the token as a form of collateral and a form of um, a way of doing credit scoring. So we, we see the token as a way to hold value in a person's wallet that we can uh, get to through a smart contract if they fail to pay their rent the same way you would with a US-based security deposit or a US-based bank account that you would that a landlord would be able to tap into. So that's one thing that makes it more attractive to us and enables people who otherwise wouldn't be able to access our apartments to use if they use our tokens. Um, And then the second things we want to do, because we want to incentivize people to use tokens and eventually even potentially migrate 
away from taking fiat currency entirely is to give them certain bells and whistles that they couldn't otherwise get. So in the housing slash hotel space, you have the concept of loyalty programs. So like frequent flyer miles or Starwood points. And we want to do that too and have a loyalty program that's unique to token holders and token users. So you can't get those benefits if you don't use tokens. You'll get the equivalent of um, points for using them over time. You get booking prayer. So if there is a situation where a place is oversold or there's a wait list, if you use tokens, you go to the front of the list. There'll be access to a members club, which is an online membership community that will have special discounts and flash sales. Um, You'll also have voting rights. So when we think about where to expand, we're based in New York City. We're backed by investors in San Francisco and Berlin. So we already have three biases toward where we expand, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we know where our customers actually want to be. And we want to democratize the voting process. Like maybe we should talk to Mohit about where he thinks we should expand next. And I bet his answer is going to be different than my San Francisco based investors. So we want to open up voting rights to token holders um, and give them a say about where we expand. And so those are the things that the consumers can get AOL token that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get from straight fiat currency. On the speculator side, um, well, obviously a speculator would be interested in buying the AOL token if they want to participate in an online economy that they think has legs. So if they think more and more users are going to use an ever-expanding network of AOL properties, the token should have more utility and therefore become more valuable. We also touch on a point lightly in our white paper, which is that if we do a good job of building the Stay A While token, initially you can use it in the Stay A While network, but the truth is there's no reason why this token couldn't become something that has a much broader and almost a protocol type uh, utility in the rental market globally. Because there, for all of the reasons why Stay A While needs it, lots of other different players in apartment rentals might find utility in the Stay A While token too. So we mentioned in our in our white paper that although the initial token design is meant to be a utility token to be used in the Stay A While network, we want to explore the possibility of creating a protocol token, which when we build it, the utility token would be exchangeable for the protocol token one for one, and we would then be able to roll out that token across other networks, not just the StayWell network. So if we succeed in doing that, then this token has tremendous value. On the developer side, um, we have what is market-wise a relatively small allocation to the development and management team. We're allocating 15% of tokens, of which about 10% are for the management team and the other 5% are for external consultants and advisors. And all of those tokens have a six-month lockup, so there's no going to be no dumping of tokens for six months. And then even after the six months, the lockup burns off over two years, so one twenty-fourth of them burn off every month thereafter. So we're incentivized internally to increase the tokens' value. Also, we are only selling a portion of the tokens that are being created during this sale. And so it behooves us to maximize the value of the tokens so that when we sell the remaining unsold tokens in the future, the value of those tokens is much higher. So we've built in a couple of intrinsic features into the token to ensure that management is completely aligned with the holders and the speculators to ensure that the future value is completely optimized. So thank you. That was very clear explanation. Got it. Yeah. The, the other question that I keep getting, especially when there is a history, mm-hmm. first of all, people like that you have a history and you have raised traditional funding. It's a real company. It's not one of those, hey, there's a blockchain, I want to raise money, you know, <laughs> type of a situation. So in that sense, you have a lot of credibility going in your way. But it brings up a question as well is, how is the ownership structure you know, uh, tokens are not ownership or not indicating ownership. It's it's simply reflecting a utilitarian value. However, you have raised money, which was more of a security based, yeah. you know, how do those two, is there a conflict between the two or are they aligned? How? 
Well, I think this is one of the biggest issues facing the entire ICO space today is that nobody really knows exactly what's going to happen. Nobody really understands how these tokens are going to be treated from an accounting standpoint. I can tell, so I worked in private equity and my company made, uh, made its name investing in really complicated structures that were difficult to understand. So I spent the first part of my career trying to figure out things that didn't make sense. I worked on CDOs and tax syndicates. Um, here's how I think about it. The token sale is merely a way of forward selling future inventory. So we recognize it as revenue. We are going to withhold a a portion of the proceeds from the token sale to pay income tax liabilities, which as a company we will have to pay since this is normal revenue. When I think about what that means from a balance sheet standpoint, we have investors on our balance sheet and they own equity in the company. It's a combination of the venture capital firms who've invested in us and the employees who hold equity in the company. The token holders are are our customers. There are people who are buying tokens and they have a claim on future supply that the company is making. and this is where you know I'm going to speak out of a turn out of turn. I'm neither an attorney nor an accountant, but when I think about it, it should be treated like a gift certificate. You're buying something in advance for a product that you have the right to call in the future. And so, from a cap table standpoint, there's no impact of the tokens on the cap table or on the equity capitalization of the company. The only challenge there is the gift certificate could be half the value or ten times the value in a year. That's true. That's where things get a little bit harder to, to you know, create similes for. Um, and I agree with you. It is complicated. I don't know the answer to that question. We've talked about it internally. I've talked about it to my inter- attorneys. Like, what kind of claim does the token holder have against the assets of the company in a, in a bankruptcy scenario? And, and those are really interesting questions that, honestly, I don't think anybody knows the answer to yet. It reminds me of um, the early days in the real estate sector when mezzanine loans became, um, they started happening and nobody really knew, was a mezzanine loan really a loan? Did it really have a debt-like claim on the um, the co- on the real estate asset? Like, Until we actually see some spectacular unwinds in the space, I don't think we're going to know exactly what happens with these. But the beauty of Stay A While is that the product itself is fairly straightforward. And as long as we deliver on the process, the promise of making the product, which we're already doing, it's not like we, have, we haven't started. We know how to do it. Once we have the proceeds from the sale, we can start really creating a lot of supply. It's not as speculative as a lot of these other ICOs, which are raising capital specifically to, to open the doors of the company. The company's already in operation. And once we have this additional gas in the form of token sale proceeds, we can just put our foot on the gas and start making supply at a much, much quicker rate. So if, if I take the other two angles, if I'm coming in as an investor, I'm only looking at the price of the token on the exchange. So I really don't care about the current ownership of Steavile. And if I'm coming in as Joe and Mary that want to live in a place, I'm saying, I still don't care because this token is merely a deposit. So what you're saying is, hey, uh, while on the regulate, regulations and tax and accounting and all of those sites, there might be implications as far as your ecosystem goes, you don't see a challenge. Is that fair? As long as we keep doing what we've been doing, I don't see a challenge. We just keep keep building more inventory, keep building. I mean, all of the apartments we have are 100% occupied. I think we, you know, I don't want to, this sounds crazy, but I think there's an almost infinite appetite in New York City for product like this. So um, it, it's really a function of just us continuing to do what we're doing and double down on what we're doing now as opposed to trying to figure out a business and try to figure out how to make it work. So I think it's, I think it's slightly less risky than the other ICOs that are really at this point, just blank checks. Interesting. I, now I have a couple of questions. Uh, people who are renting out their apartments, they'll be paid in your tokens or they'll be paid in some generalized crypto like ether or you will convert it to uh, convert it into fiat and then you will pay them. Uh, because I believe if you, want to onboard them for the token thing, you, it, it'll take a long time uh, to educate them and then uh, get the supply going on. Uh, supply going on. So we actually met with one of our property owners last week and told him about the token sale and blockchain. And he was like, 
Yeah, I've heard of Bitcoin, but I've never, I don't really know anything about this. So I completely agree with you. I think the education of the real estate sector, real estate sector is always one of the slowest industries to change. And so I think it's a path to slow starvation if we we try to approach landlords and pay them only in tokens. But I do think there's a bigger opportunity. In fact, yesterday, um, Stay A While was on the main page of Cranes, New York, which is the biggest real estate, one of the biggest real estate publications in New York City talking about how we're poised to really shake up real estate by bringing blockchain technology and cryptocurrency to the space. So I'm not banking on that happening anytime soon, but I think by doing this, we're creating a dialogue that doesn't exist and bringing awareness to crypto to a sector that really has no idea what it is. I think to answer your question directly, I don't believe we will be paying our landlords and tokens anytime soon. However, I think there's an opportunity to pay them in a mix of fiat currency and tokens. And, and mm-hmm. in doing so, they, they can underwrite the potential appreciation of those tokens when they're thinking about um, the revenue they generate from those properties and, and assign it a different value than they would to a more stable fiat currency. Got it. And on, and on the other side, the consumer side, after the token sale, will these apartments be available in both the fiat and the token prices or will there be just the token prices? Initially, we're going to list the price both in fiat currency and in tokens. And the ultimate goal is to migrate away from fiat currency entirely. I don't know exactly when we'll do that. We have to see about you know adoption in the sector and, and, and make sure that our current customers understand what that means. But initially, after the token sale, we'll start listing our price both in local fiat currency and in stay a bits. Uh, I see uh, maybe you have thought through this. I'm, I'm kind of, I have to mention this. I'm looking at a almost like a first right of refusal. I'm a landlord. I want to list one of my properties. It stay a while, for example. And then I have a choice. I might say, hmm, I understand Bitcoins. I don't really understand stay a while token, but I'm going to take the risk. Let me, let me get my payment in tokens. So all is fine. But I might come back and say, oh, I don't understand those. Just pay me $1,000 for every so many days. You know. Uh, so that's the second scenario. The, the challenge with the second scenario is you have to reconcile your token pricing uh, because the, the deposits, et cetera, are in, in tokens and the price can fluctuate. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking it, that token, it, but there is always going to be a token corresponding to my rental, I'm imagining, just to maintain standard standards. So is a token going to be purchased by a speculator? So... Is there some way of making up? What I'm trying to say is if everything is in tokens, but I want in fiat, you need to have some uh, some pool of money that makes up for any potential losses, uh, uh, your hedging bets. Yeah. Interestingly enough, one of the things I failed to mention when I talked about my fa- family background is my, my husband is a currency trader. And so we talk a lot about uh, hedging and, and, and how eventually, you know, initially I don't think the market for stay bits is going to be deep enough that there are going to be sophisticated hedges available, but we already think about hedging. Um, you know, we've had a lot of interest in expanding overseas and we think about currency risk even before we, we start, thought about having our own currency. So these are issues. Yes, we think about them. Um, In our use of proceeds in the white paper, we have an allocation for a reserve. We didn't specifically earmark it as a currency currency risk reserve, but we know that there are reserves required for this business generally. So it's an issue we're thinking about. I don't have a clear answer for you today, but it's definitely something that we, we will spend a lot of time making sure that we don't create any perverse incentives in the market for manipulating the price of our tokens relative to U.S. dollars or whatever local currency is. Interesting. Yeah, then, there are, then there are investors like Mohit and myself that would be super interested in uh, providing an equivalent of options that have a certain strike price, which is equal to the fiat currency. And because we we are crazy people that see a huge upside in anything crypto, so we would take that bet all day long and sell options, which you as stay a while would kind of take advantage of because you want a stable pricing on the back end. So you're not taking any risk. So in other words, quote unquote, we are taking the risk, <laughs> but we have the, we're taking the risk because we believe that the market will go up at the end of the day. So I think that's so interesting. In fact, I have some friends that work in the crypto space. They're, they're like me and they come out of traditional financial services and they're starting to migrate toward um, crypto specific uh, baskets, either because they work as a trader or an investor. And I think the sophistication that's going to happen in this space is really interesting and all the different things that people will be able to do with 
all the same tools they've had in their tool basket you know, to deal with equity and debt investments, we can create those same things for crypto. I think the issue is just going to be for, for you and Mohit, initially the, the volume on those options that you're going to create might be, you know, $3,000 a day. Might cost us more to document it than you're ever going to make on the option itself. But it's a lot of fun to think about. And that's exactly where I think this sector is heading. I mean, there are a lot of really smart people who spend their days financial engineering thinking about how they can turn crypto into a space that's as deep and as sophisticated as, as the other traditional asset classes. Awesome. Uh, we can keep going, but uh, I think you are given a fascinating uh, view. You have told us about the history. You have told us about the team. You have told us about the, the target customers. And then you told us why the technology fits in so beautifully. And you have elaborated on the various aspects of the token design. So let's let's go to the final sprint here, which is... I see yourself. ICO, the token itself, uh, the, oh, you know, what are the dates, what is being sold, what are the discounts, and what are the websites, and how they can connect with you, you know, all of those. Yep, yep. So our company website is stayawhile.com. The token sale website is token.stayawhile.com. The public sale starts on October 30th at 12 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. If you go to our website, there is a function to add that uh, start date to your calendar. Um, we are holding a private presale, and the details of it are on our Telegram chat, which there is a link to on the token sale website. Uh, the prices will increase with volume, I'm sorry, with over time. So if the earlier you participate in the sale, the lower your price is. Uh, and there are additional discounts available during the private presale. Well, who, can, who can participate in the private presale? Anybody? You can participate in the private presale as long as you buy a minimum of 10 Ethereum worth of StayAbit tokens. Okay, that's what I wanted to get out. Okay, that's wonderful. Uh, Mohit, I'm sure you have a ton of questions on that one. Yes, one second. I'm just a nod of the minimum amount of the uh, in the private presale. Okay, so... You're, you're, you're talking to people that have varied interests here, Janine. So you'll be issuing these tokens from which country? US itself? I didn't understand the question. Say it again, Mohit. Uh, uh, you'll be issuing these tokens from which country? U.S. itself? Yes, we're issuing it for we're a U.S.-based company and we'll be issuing them out of the U.S., yes. Okay, now when, when you raised this VC money, was this money raised for the normal stay a while minus the blockchain or was this money raised for the stay a while plus blockchain? No, this, this was raised for stay a while generally. I mean, early stage VCs know that there's always a lot of volatility and change in an early stage mm -hmm. company. But at the time when I raised the capital, it was not for a blockchain related company at all. Got it. So now the situation is this, that you have some money in the bank and then you are, uh, you are also raising some money from the token sale. Uh, I plan to use both of these proceeds. Uh, uh, how, how, how does the roadmap look like, say over the next 24 months, spending to more cities or you'll be focusing on growing within these the current cities that you are available in? So I think we'll continue to grow in New York City, uh, and and but generally we want to hear where the token holders want us to grow. If we find that the vast majority of token holders are U.S. based and want us to go to San Francisco or Texas or Miami, then we'll focus on those markets. We want to be responsive to the token holders. The last thing we want to do is have a token sale and have a lot of angry token holders who want to use their tokens, but we don't have supply uh, to meet them. I mean the whole point of this, I'm a real person with a real professional track record and reputation and everybody on my team is the same way too. We want to build something that our customers and our stakeholders love. And by opening the token sale, we're creating a new, a new category of stay well customers that we want to please and delight. So we want to be responsive to where they want to go. Um, we have a breakdown again in the white paper of use of proceeds and the vast majority of the proceeds will be used to fund the cost of developing the blockchain technology. So we estimate we'll have to hire two to three blockchain specific engineers to build out the technology and then also to fund the expansion costs into new markets and to add new inventory to our, to our portfolio. Got and the total supply of the token will be 15 million. That's you can see yeah. on the website. Yes. This will be the all supply that will be created. Yes. Is it? Yes. Interesting. Now, now, now the situation is this. I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. The total, the total supply of the tokens is limited, which is 50 million tokens. Cool. Now you would, uh, I assume that you would want to grow, uh, uh, grow and expand to 
cities way beyond US and only in all the cities that are out there in the world. Yes. Now, when the price of the token up, does it make the uh, does it make that one particular apartment expensive more more expensive over a period of time? Because if one apartment is listed at say two tokens. And the value of those two tokens will keep going up because of speculation uh, in the market. So the, the value, the price of the apartment will decline. So the 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 price in stayabit tokens will will reflect the conversion rate of the stayabit tokens back to local fiat currency. And if it appreciates spectacularly, then you'll have to use fewer tokens to stay in those apartments. The vision is that with those with those tokens that remain unsold. Assuming that the value of the token is retained or improves, then we can issue fewer tokens in the future to fund growth than we would have had to initially when the token price is lower. Hmm, hmm. So if I'm understanding, the pricing will be decided in the US dollars and then the uh, pricing will be converted into the token price and then that listed over there. Is it? So... so we so the thing with our with what we're selling is it has a real real cost to deliver it right i mean it's not a saas where the marginal cost is zero so we take the price that it costs us to deliver it we add a margin on top of it and we know what that price is in local currency whether it's us dollars or british pounds or euro or whatever rupees whatever the local currency is we will then convert that price into stayabit tokens so if the stayabit token is a dollar today but $5 next year, it will cost you fewer tokens to stay in a stay-a-while stay apartment next year than it does today. That price will, will, change, dramat- will change dynamically with the value of the stay-a-bit token when you, when you compare it to other currencies, relative to other currencies. Got it. And even when you, if you decide, say, even if, if after 12 months, you decide to completely move it to, to the prices, even then, uh, token prices will be dependent upon the local price currencies that are out there. That's a really good question. I mean, I think never going to be in a situation where we can pay for Wi-Fi and utilities with stay-a-bit tokens. So there are always going to be under and, and employee costs. So there are always going to be underlying costs endemic to our business that will be denominated in fiat currency. Therefore. I think the price will always be somewhat related or pegged to the local currency. I mean, unless the entire world changes and everything is denominated in, in this huge variety of cryptocurrencies, I think for a very long time, um, stay a bit tokens are going to be related in value to local fiat currency. Guys, I have a hard stop at 10, just so you know. So um, I just wanted to give us some time to wrap up. I had actually finished my question, so I was waiting for more <laughs> to Even I'm done. That, that was my last question uh, regarding this. Wow. Talk about perfect timing, Janine. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think that was fabulous. I think we got a real good rundown of various aspects. And I want to take this opportunity not only to thank you for appearing on our Crypto Nights podcast, but I also wanted to Wish you and your team a very, very successful ICO. Seems to be super exciting. And uh, like you said, you've taken something extraordinarily complicated and broken it down to something quite simple and digestible for the various members of your ecosystem. So congratulations on that. And I wish you all the best. Yeah. And I, I want to say one thing. If it weren't for crypto, the three of us never would be talking today. I mean, it does have a really unique ability to connect people that otherwise wouldn't have been connected to each other, which I think is that really speaks to the power of, of the, not only crypto. the idea behind Stay A While generally, which is to break down borders and to create truly global citizenship and, and the ability to move around and, and connect in a really different way. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. This is such a perfect ending. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Crypto Nights. Never miss an episode. Subscribe now at www.cryptonights.io.